Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Bow hearts and heads in silent worship. Let us pray. This evening, Lord God above, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this evening we are thankful for giving us yet another beautiful day. And again, Lord, a place to worship, to be with the saints of God, to hear your word. We ask for your spirit to be us, be with us in double measure, Lord, that we may grow in sanctification and understanding of your word, to be encouraged by the preaching of your word as we go through a text, Lord, talking about judgment as well as protection of your people. We pray and ask again, God, to remove COVID from the land and all the consequences therein, Lord, and bring us back to normalcy to protect those, God, who are high risk, not only from COVID, but from other ailments and sicknesses, God, that we have that perhaps we've not always taken seriously as a society. And so, God, we pray that we would continue to take care of our own health as best we can, and we have the means, Lord, we've had for so long to seek out what we need to protect ourselves physically, Lord, watch over our bodies and the loved ones amongst us. We pray for our work situation, God, we would continue to be gainfully employed, to work well as unto the Lord. We be thankful for our employment, God, to pray, Lord, for more employment if we need it, God, and more money if we need it again, Lord, not because we are selfish, Lord, but because we would desire... Uh, more for our family, Lord, for their health and for our children's children, Lord, to save up money, God, for difficult times in the future and for times of prosperity as well. And we ask, Lord, that you would move the hearts of our employers, Lord, to give us the pay raise if we uh, deserve it, God, less hours, Lord, if we can. And so, Lord, and also especially to be continually employed. We pray, God, for those who are overemployed, have so much work, so much on their plate, God, who perhaps need more co-workers, um, another boss, Lord, better help and the like. May they get what they need. We pray, God, as a church, for the young and old alike among us. Again, in a society that wishes to divide the young and old, or rather the old wish to be young again often, it seems. And, Lord, we pray that uh, the youth would learn from the aged in the best sense, Lord, and have respect to them, as we heard about this morning, God. We pray that the uh, uh, aged among us, Lord, again, a relative category to be sure, but we have youngers, younger ones beneath us, Lord, and our family, certainly, God, but in our influence and amongst our friends here at church, that uh, we would help instruct them, God, help direct them in their life, Lord, and help encourage them to use their youthfulness, energy, and their strength, God, for the good of the church and for those in need. We pray similarly, Lord, for those who are rich and poor among us, God. We're again thankful that you're with us, Lord, that we would not have our riches consume us, distract us, Lord, but to know that you've given us so much prosperity to help Lord, with our family and our children's children, but also the help with the poor among us in the church of God, that the world may know that we love one another. Precious God and Savior, we pray lastly for our church and our efforts at outreach, Lord, and to talk to those who are in need of a Savior, Lord, that you would be with us, that we would grow numerically and spiritually, God, to read your word, to love you, Lord, and to flee temptation and sin. Help us, God, to encourage one another in the faith, Stand strong in the Lord. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn into our Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Verses 1 through 8. Let us listen attentively to the Word of God. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders on it, against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. 
For Tyre built herself a tower, heaped up silver like the dust, and gold like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out. He will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. Gaza shall also be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectations. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall be not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from his mouth and the abominations from between his teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God. He shall be like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with my eyes. Let us pray. With these words, God, we read mostly of judgment. We read, Lord, how you are have come and will come to judge the nations of the world who rebel against you, who do not wish to submit against you, and especially those who have attacked your people, the apple of your eye. And as we see here, God, at the end, judgment isn't the only thing, Lord. There's also protection for your people and indeed for anyone, even amongst the nations, Lord, those who are outside the church, who calls upon the name of the Lord. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Zechariah has a burden. It is a burden of all the prophets of old to declare to the world a terrible future. Often the use of the word burden in the Old Testament is associated with our minds to a terrible future. And of course, in that sense, it is a burden. It is a burden to be carried upon the shoulder of the prophets, a burden to carry bad news. You don't want to carry bad news. I don't want to be the, the bearer of bad news. And so when we hear the word burden, we often think of it that way. Nobody likes to hear bad news. No one likes to carry bad news. Often they are, that is, the messengers given the short end of the stick, and they are the ones who are harangued and hated. And although the word here is likely related to the idea of the seriousness of the message, sometimes you see it translated oracle, something from God, an important thing to be listened to. It still is easy to think, and it makes sense to think of the word like something terrible to carry, a burden, although it isn't necessarily that the idea of the word per se, but it certainly has that effect, often is the case. Often it is a bearing, a bearing of bad news. This burden of Zechariah, of course, is not only bad news as we read in verse 8, it also includes good news. In these verses, the good news is again at the end. So we end the sermon on a good note. The good news is that the judgment of the nations is not the judgment of the church. The church will be protected. Even to this day, the church of God is protected from the judgment of the world. And as we look carefully into this verse, we understand more carefully and rejoice in God who judges the world and protects the church. The first point, judgment against the church's enemies, is what we have here, although that's not the word used. That's clearly what's the case here. We know all those nations listed often over and over again. We see some of these nations, Tyre and Sidon, for example, used in other parts of the prophets. They hated Israel. They wanted nothing to do with Israel. Often the nations, again, when they are different nations, they had different gods, and they claimed our God gave us prosperity, and your God's not the right God. So they always had that overt uh, animosity that today is often covered over, glossed over in the name of an America, in the name of prosperity and money. Let's forget your God. Your God is the same God as mine. It's the green God of money, right? The color of money. 
But back then they were a little more honest and they had their gods and they even went to war with their gods. God judges the nations. This is an important truth, an important doctrine. Many uh, don't think of it that way today anymore. Maybe when we think of the Old Testament prophets, on the other hand, we think of the prophets always going after the church. What has Israel done this time? What's her problem this time? God has brought the prophets, and we know they're going after Israel. But that's not always been the case. And in fact, it's quite interesting here in Isaiah, for example, chapters 14, about halfway through chapter 14, to chapter 23, are judgments, one country, nation after another. Boom, 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 slam, slam. It warns them, judgment's coming, God is coming for you, you better repent. From Assyria to Tyre and Sidon, as we read in this text as well. So we read in chapter 23, the burden against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste. It's not just Sidon to Tyre, it's many other nations, Babylon and Egypt as well. And it wasn't just Isaiah and Zechariah. Other prophets also brought warnings or a burden from the Lord, an oracle, saying, you better repent. You better flee. You better, frankly, come to Israel and submit to the only true God, Yahweh, covenant-keeping Lord. It's also important to remember that the prophets of old not only brought judgment to Israel, but to those outside of Israel, those outside the church. That's the parallel. Because there are people who teach that we shouldn't teach that way. We shouldn't warn the nations as much. And in fact, God doesn't even bring judgment today. There's just a future judgment, that is the coming of Christ. But between here and the future judgment, is are nations really being judged today? I don't know. I think it's just an Old Testament thing. People think that way in the church. And we should not think that way. It's not just the Old Testament nations that God judges at the time. He judges them today. Has God changed? Has his holy law changed? Is he any less concern for holiness? Is he indifferent to the plight of his people? No. And thus, the judgments of the nations are right before us, and we are, of course, in the midst of one in America, and have been for a few generations, I would argue. It became more and more obvious as time goes on, a little judgment here, a little more there, and it got stronger and greater. You go against such common sense things and natural revelation. Is that not judgment? Of course it is. There's an old pagan saying, to whom the gods wish to judge, they bring madness. We have much madness in America. So it's an important doctrine, remember, that God judges nations, not just in the future when Christ returns, but even now, I believe. His holiness is still the same. He has not changed. And wickedness is still wickedness. And the judgment you read, for example, in Isaiah, aren't all overtly against Israel. Oh, look what you've done to Israel. It's just their own wickedness. Just simply their own wickedness. What you do against Israel is more added wickedness and brings greater condemnation upon them for they've touched the apple of God's eye. So God does judge nations today, I would argue. And this, this past, these passages and this passage is still relevant today. The nations in particular that are judged here that we read in verses 1 uh, through 5 uh, and 6 in particular, we read about Hadrach. This is interesting. Uh, they, we think we've Perhaps found it. We certainly found lots of references. We can dig up lots of 
uh, bureaucratic documentation, sales and things like that, judges and judgments. And they mentioned this city, which apparently was a northern administrative city or region. And then uh, Hamath, we read in verse 2, which is a known, a well-known administrative city further up north, north of Damascus. Both these cities are north of Damascus, which of course is north of Israel. Tyre and Sidon are coastal commercial cities of wealth, especially Tyre. You probably remember that city. Tyre was the most successful and wealthy of them. Uh, These are cities on the coast that made money off of commerce, off of the Mediterranean, back and forth, the shipments, right? Great shipping lanes there, and they are right there making money hand over fist for a very long time. They sat in their their own security right here. They built themselves a tower. They heaped up silver like dust. They were so prosperous. It might as well have been dust. It was was, everywhere, abundance, and their wealth. And, of course, as most people find themselves, and we know of Hollywood types and politicians, they depend upon their wealth. That's their security, even for their own soul. And we know what's coming to them. God's going to bring judgment against their smugness, against their godless success, and their idolizing of prosperity. This is my protection. This is what I want. I don't want God. And so they built the city. In fact, Tyre was built out into the sea of the Mediterranean. They had double walls 150 feet high. They had patrolling boats around the city to make sure no one can get to the city and attack it. Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar, right? The great king who came to Israel and sacked her and took over many a country. It took him 13 years to siege Tyre. It was not an easy thing to do. They were quite secure. This is before the time of Zechariah here. So Zechariah is looking to the future. That Tyre will be judged, that Hadrach uh, and Hamath, these coastal cities and these other cities, administrative cities, will be destroyed. And the destruction does come to pass. In fact, it was sufficiently accurate, this description of its destruction, that many unbelieving scholars, I use scare quotes, believe this was written after the destruction of Tyre. This is a common game they play. Right, the liberals, and they do the same thing with Isaiah. The prophecies were so accurate in Isaiah, so detailed, it had to have been written hundreds of years later after all these events, and it's just hogwash. Zechariah's warning of Tyre's fall is 200 years before she fell. Tyre was literally burned by Alexander the Great. She will be devoured by fire, verse 4. In 332, Alexander the Great built a land bridge from the shore to the island city and conquered the city in seven months. He was a tactical and military genius. Her wealth was taken, the citizens were enslaved, and was burnt to the ground, never to be rebuilt. We're reading it right here, brothers and sisters, the prophecy that has come to pass. 2,000 years later, we see it. And then we read verses 5 and following. Ashkelon shall see it in fear. What? See the fall of Tyre and Sidon? Look what has happened to them. And notice the movement here. So Hadrach and Hamath are north of Damascus. 
Tyre is along the horizontal or close to Damascus, relatively speaking, in Sidon. The destruction is coming from the north to the south, which is exactly where Alexander moved. And he went down into Canaan, of course, took out Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod and the Philistines. Boom, boom, down the coastal line, down to Egypt. Ashkelon shall fear it. Gaza, Gaza shall be sorrowful. Ekron will be dried up in her expectations. Oh, woe is me, all is lost. So here in the second point, the conversion through God's judgment. The judgment of God's enemies is the first point. Here is conversion through God's judgment. God's judgment, his law, is an instrument often for people's conversion. Not as though it converts people, but it's a, like a tripwire. It trips them on their face. That they are nothing before God. They've broken his holy law. And they must bow down before him. Ashkelon and Gaza, Ekron and Ashdod, were major cities and regions of the Philistines. Big city, powerful cities, not as powerful as Tyre, but they've been around a while, like 800 years. How long has America been around? I mean, just can you imagine the history back then? Of course, the pride that comes with that history. All of them have been found and dug up. These aren't made-up cities, brothers and sisters. You're going to find more and more as you go into the future. Uh, that Americans are just ignorant, so such rank ignorance about Christianity. To us, we're all the same. Recently, we found out the Apple map, like they got like a Google map, it's an Apple map, has been pegging a number of OPC churches as though they're PCUSA. To them, it's all the same. I mean, just literally all the same. You're religious, you're crazy. And so they come to the Bible with that understanding, thinking it's a crazy Bible, but we know it's actual history. We've dug it up for a couple hundred years now. These cities are real. The history is real, and it's alive and amazing. We have much historical evidence again and documents that we've dug up all over the Middle East, referencing the cities, let alone the cities themselves that we've dug up. Even lesser-known cities, as I mentioned before, Hadrach and uh, Hamath, we know about them, even before we found Hamath. Ashkelon and the like, and these cities, Ekron and Ashdod, are what we call city-states today. Each city was its own country, basically, with walled fortifications in the surrounding areas. The farmland were, of course, protected, and, and, and they would all run to the city uh, when the wartime came. They had their own armies and farms. These are marked for judgment. These cities, these Philistines and their cities are marked for judgment. And it's not the first time. Uh, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 25, Amos mention these cities. Warning them, judgment is coming. Now, in the case of the Jewish audience like we have here, it's an encouragement. God will judge the enemies of the church. And I've preached on that before. We certainly want their conversion. But if they will not convert, we want God's justice as well. We should be satisfied in that as the psalmist is. They see, that is, these Philistines, what Alexander the Great is going to do. And they see it with sorrow and tear, right? And fear, excuse me, and tears. Took Nebuchadnezzar 13 years to siege Tyre. Alexander the Great comes along in seven months, boop, it's down. He'd be scared out of your skin too. And he's coming for him. They witnessed God's judgment on Tyre. And if any of them were probably hearing this, the Philistines were, of course, still mixed in here and they had fights with the, the Jews for a long time. They're a, a thorn in their side. Probably heard some of these prophecies and they're scared. And, and that fear. And that fear perhaps brings them conversion, as we read here. 
Now, the particular judgment before we get to, to their conversion we read here is interesting. Um, verse 5, And Ekron, for, her, for he dried up her expectations, you know, her expectations of security and prosperity. Oh, it's going down the tubes. Alexander the Great's coming. The king shall perish from Gaza. He'll be killed. Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. And it hasn't been since then. Gutted by wars. Cities gutted by wars. We've seen that. It happens often. And then it continues on here. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdon. The idea isn't that mixed race people are subpar for many nations in the ancient Near East, including Israel, had many other nations mixed in with them. It's just that they weren't ruling them. Right? It was a fearful thing to have someone else rule you than uh, your own populace. And that's the uh, judgment there. Blood from his mouth and the abominations there. I will take the blood from his mouth, verse 7, and the abominations from between his teeth. Probably refer to false worship and the foods they ate to their false gods. The killing of animals to their false gods. That ties right in to what we see here. I will take away the blood from his mouth. The immediate object may have been the Philistines, but probably not just the Philistines, but any of those people in the Canaanite regions there. And the abomination from between his teeth but he who remains, he who survives the destruction from Alexander the Great, even he shall be for our God. Where did that come from? You see that? He who remains amongst the Philistines and Ashdod and Ekron and Ashkelon, even he shall be for our God. What is They're going to be converted. They're going to be for the Jewish God. And shall be like a leader in Judah. Since when has a Philistine become a leader in Judah? And Ekron shall be a Jebusite. You see what's going on here? It's talking about the conversion of the Gentiles. Again, in the, mixed, in the midst of judgment, he mixes in a promise and a prophecy of the conversion of the Gentiles, reminding us yet again and again and again, just in the book of Zechariah, that it was never about being Jewish as such, being a follower of Yahweh. The conversion of the Gentiles. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God, and shall be a leader in Judah and Ekron, like a Jebusite. That's clear what he's saying before, that they shall be converted, they shall be integrated and adopted into the household of faith to the extent that they'll even be leaders in Judah. Not just anywhere in Israel, but Judah. That's the, that's the big tribe. That's the, line, that's the tribe of the king of Israel, David. right? The line of Judah. That's the place to, to be in. And they'll be rulers, chief heads. Amongst God's people. How can that be? Because it was never about being Jewish, right? We have that to this day. I am a leader, and we have other leaders here, and a lot of leaders in the churches across America. Amongst God's people. We are like the Philistines converted. We are the Gentiles, the Goyim, those who are not of the Jews. But what does he mean by the Jebusites? This is interesting, right? Ekron, that was one of the cities, right? Ekron has dried up her expectations. Ekron shall be like a Jebusite. The Jebusites... They are the ones who had inhabited Jerusalem. And David came along and kicked them out. Remember that? And he named it Jerusalem. But he didn't destroy all of them. There's mentions and references to Jebusites later on in the Bible, but not much. Apparently, they became eventually integrated into the people of God. So that's another way of saying Gentiles will be converted and saved. They're just going to be part of God's people. Like the Jebusites became part of the Jews. Probably intermarried with some of them. 
And it's just, you read this, you're like, don't the Jews in the New Testament, what, what, how, how could they miss this? This is just the book of Zechariah. We know they have in all the other prophets. And I've touched upon some of those. Just this verse alone should be amazing to them. And yet so many Jews had a lot of pride. Oh no, there's no way, Gentiles. No, you have to be a Jew. We talk about pride of race. There's some serious pride going on there. It was bad. This should have brought them low and humbled them. It's not just the Gentile nations, brothers and sisters. What are we reading here? The enemies of Israel are converted. How many? We do not know. Some, to be sure. God brought judgment, and that judgment brought conversion. Pray for that today, brothers. God would bring good out of bad for the good of his church and for his own glory. We are living, as I like to say over and over again, in the prophecies today. (laughs) They are being fulfilled right before our very eyes. Even the enemies of the church, like Paul. Paul was an enemy of the church, remember? He presided over the death of Stephen. Can and will be converted. Praise be to his name. Praise the Lord in judging the enemies, in judging his enemies, the enemies of the church, he often brings many their own deliverance, deliverance through judgment. Pray to that end, brothers and sisters. Pray to that end. And then thirdly, protection of God's people, verse 8. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. For now I've seen with my own eyes. God is our guard. I will camp around my house, the house of worship. But the house, the house of worship, of course, is theologically and morally the center of the church. And to protect that house is to protect the church, the people of God. To be near the temple of the Lord is to be theologically near God. They knew God was everywhere. The psalmist talks about it, and so the prophets. It's just a way of speaking metaphorically to highlight again and teach them that God is in their midst. He is with them, and he is special to them, and they are special to him. God is their army. I will camp around my house, and no more shall an oppressor pass through them. Them who? Well, the church, his people. For now I've seen with my own eyes, God is watching over them. And perhaps the illusion here is because of him who passes by and him who returns, Uh, Speaking of himself, maybe in the third person, that God is guarding back and forth, or maybe of the armies to come, God will protect him from the armies who come back and forth. Either way, it's clear that God will camp with his people, and if he's camping with his people, he is protecting his people. He is over his people. He is the army for his people. For uh, Not only them then, but for us today. He is our encampment. He is our protection. He has seen us. He has special care and watches us in a special manner. Again, God knows all things. When he says God sees you, it's a special focusing. He says, I have special care for you. I have my grace upon you, brothers and sisters, even to this day. He is our watchman. I see you, and I'm watching out for you. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, you know this one, they labor in vain who built it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stands awake in vain. God is our watchman. It is never vain when he watches. He watches your soul, brothers and sisters, and even watches your body. And he's preserved and protected it. God is our army. God is our watchman. But, of course, that doesn't mean we don't set up armies and watchmen. It says you do. It's just unless God's behind it, it goes to naught because it comes down to him. The emphasis on God 
being behind the judgment, as we saw, as a king marching from the north of Damascus and judging the nations to the south coastal cities of the modern-day Gaza Strip, and defeating the enemies of the church of old, teaching the church of today that God does the same thing. Many nations over the last 2,000 years have fallen to God's judgment. The fall of Rome was God's judgment. Yet the church still stood and still stands to this day. America will fall unless the Lord comes. That's the end of it. Same for everybody. But the church shall survive. Praise be to God. He protects us. And what's interesting here, I dug in a little bit. I'm not going to have much more to say on this. But again, we see God's concern for the oppressed. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, obviously through his own people. That's who he's concerned about. He's not concerned about Tyre. He's bringing judgment upon them. Or Sidon. And to the extent that he has concern, it's for his elect, and he brings conversion through that judgment, to be sure. But here the oppression is upon God's people over and over again. That's what we see in the Bible. No more shall an oppressor pass through them. The word oppressor there is quite interesting. Very interesting. It's used in Exodus 3.7. Of the harsh taskmasters. Remember them in Egypt? who said, build more bricks, build more bricks. We're trying, we're trying, not trying hard enough. In fact, you have to get the straw yourself now and build the bricks. Remember that? They didn't give them what they needed. That's the idea of oppression. It's economic oppression. Demanding more than you can give. Apparently something like that was happening to the church, maybe by Tyre, maybe by the local Philistines. We don't know. Today, Christians are oppressed in job situations, even if they don't always think of it that way. Perhaps they lose their job for not caving in, as we know. The last several years, goes to the Supreme Court. These people lose. Or when Christians work for companies that demand too much of their time and their resources and give too little money or time for their own family, because, again, we live in a world that's money, money, money in America. You talk about this. God is concerned about the economic oppression of his people. Now, our church isn't going to be keep preaching on this and go out in the streets and march and whatnot, although you could as an individual, but again, the church's job is to preach and warn and instruct God's people and feed them. But the text tells us God is concerned, and we ought to have some concern, not just oppression in general. This is what I dovetails to this morning and before. But oppression of whom? God's people in particular. We have enough poverty, it seems to me, amongst our own churches, and concerns that we ought to put more money towards them to help them than random strangers across the world. That's enough I'll say there. Pray to that end that God will continue to help his people who are oppressed. Of course, economically, although not only economically, he has done that historically, we're here and there in history and cities and nations that the church had freedom to thrive and their people to thrive for their own children and their grandchildren to have prosperity, and that's a good thing. It's not wrong. It's used for God's glory. But ultimately, of course, we desire spiritual freedom and oppression from those who would come upon us and bear down upon us and forbid us from worshiping our God. We're thankful for the spiritual freedom that we have right now in Christ Jesus. Christ came and freed us from the oppression of sin and of Satan's oppressive rule, brothers and sisters. He wants to do both. People can over-spiritualize, of course, and say, well, it's all about the soul, you're safe from sin, that's great, we don't have any care in the world, we don't care about the body, whatever happens. And some of the Anabaptists kind of went that route. 
the social oppression, the economic oppression that Christians are feeling more and more, will be done away with, brothers and sisters. It's called heaven. God is concerned about our body. It's called a new body. It's called a resurrection. You'd be thankful for that and pray to that end. Praise the Lord for his judgments against the enemies of the church. Praise the Lord for converting the enemies of the church through that judgment. And may he do more. Praise God for protecting his church and being concerned about his own people being oppressed. Let us pray. We thank you and praise you, God, above, for this vision of judgment to come 20 years after Zechariah, as we see 2,300 years later, Lord, that it came upon Tyre and Ashton and the other Philistine cities. We pray, God, that your justice would stand firm. We pray, God, that your grace would stand firm in protecting your church. And would you bring many, Lord, through the judgment of the nations to conversion. In your name alone we pray. Amen. For the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.